You know, there are different types of sermons. There is the rocking horse sermon. It goes back and forth, back and forth, but it gets nowhere. Then there is the mockingbird sermon. There's a lot of repetition, but nothing new. Then there's the casserole sermon. A little bit of everything, but not much solid. Then there's the Jericho sermon, where you march around the subject seven times. Then there is the Duracell sermon. It just keeps going and going and going. Then, of course, the NyQuil sermon. You're asleep in no time. And then finally, there is the Christmas tree sermon. You set it up, you decorate it, everybody enjoys it, and then you throw it away without it providing very little lasting benefit. Well, the Sermon on the Mount was none of those types of sermons. It was a sermon supreme. If sermons were pizzas, the Sermon on the Mount would be a sermon supreme. Clear and concise, probing yet powerful, simple but sublime. For those who sat on that grassy slope there on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, this was a sermon they would never, ever forget. Jesus is unveiling the nature of his kingdom. In chapter 5, Jesus contrasted the righteousness of the Pharisees with true righteousness. Now in chapter 6, he contrasts the worship of the Pharisees with true worship. He teaches us how to give, how to pray, and how to fast. Verse 1 is the guiding principle in all of our acts of worship. Jesus says, take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Rather than glorifying God, the underlying goal of the Pharisees was to be seen by men. The Greek phrase here translated to be seen is our word for theater. It's been said we're all just actors on a stage, and that may be true, but the real question is, who is our audience? Is it man or is it God? Jesus says our sole motive in giving and praying and fasting is to be pleasing and glorifying to God. You know, in sports, a hot dog is more than just a tube of meat they serve at the concession stand. No, in sports, a hot dog is a player who performs more to be seen than necessarily to win. He's a showboat. He doesn't just walk, he struts. He plays to draw the spotlight more so than to win the game. The Pharisees were guilty of being hot dog holy men. They were spiritual show-offs. The Pharisees had turned the worship of God into a circus. A three-ring circus, I might add. In verses 2 through 4, there was the game of giving. In verses 5 through 8, Jesus tackles the performance of praying. And in verses 16 through 18, he takes up the farce of their fasting. Every circus has its clowns, and the Pharisees were the clowns of Judaism. Theirs was a strut-your-stuff kind of spirituality. I call the Pharisees, they were guilty of hot dog holiness. Verse 2 explains, Therefore... When you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. Surely I say to you, they have their reward. 
In Herod's temple, there was a courtyard known as the Chamber of the Secret. There a large container in the shape of a trumpet set in the courtyard, and folks would quietly and anonymously and inconspicuously slip by, and they would drop their offering into the box. Generally, the proceeds went to the poor. The Pharisees, though, felt it was unnecessary to go to the temple to give to the poor. Oh, no. They wore little trumpets on the belts of their robes. And they would stand at the street corner or in the marketplace, in the bazaar where there were many, many people. And they would blow these little trumpets. And they would begin to pass out money among the poor. People would look at these pompous Pharisees and they would praise him for his righteousness and for his generosity. You know, we laugh at such a blatant, attention-grabbing, you know, uh, attempt these days. But let me ask you, how often have you tooted your own horn? We're all guilty. How we like to hear the oohs and ahs. Oh, he's so spiritual. Oh, she loves God so much. Nothing strokes the ego like a little spiritual stardom. Hey, there's a little bit of hot dog in everybody's bun. But here's Jesus' warning. Do a deed to be seen by men, and the moment you're seen, the moment you get the applause, you've got the only reward you're ever going to get. You better enjoy the accolades and the pats on the back and the esteem of men, because you're going to get no reward from the Lord. We're told the way to give in verse 3. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will Himself reward you openly. Since our tendency is to hot dog it, we can't even trust our own motives. This is why we should always choose to give in a private and in a low-key and in a confidential manner. G. Campbell Morgan once said, Motive is everything in the kingdom. And this is what we learn in the Sermon on the Mount. Guys, when acts of worship are staged to impress men, they cease to impress God. Jesus says, and when you pray. Now notice here verse 5. It's not if you pray, it's when you pray. The same is going to be said of giving in verse 2 and of fasting later in verse 16. Obviously, Jesus intended for his followers to do what the Pharisees were doing, to give and to pray and to fast. These are not optional spiritual practices. These are expected from us. But we're to do them from a different motive and in a different way than was done by the Pharisees. He says, and when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. Now, first, Jesus tells us how not to pray. Don't pray like the Pharisees. And then he's going to teach us how to pray in verse 9. A devout Jew would pray three times a day. At nine in the morning, at noon, and then at three in the afternoon. Wherever he was at that time, he would stop whatever he was doing and he would pray. But the Pharisees, they scheduled their day so that they would be in conspicuous public places when it came time for prayer, on a street corner, or in a crowded bazaar. 
The objective was to be admired by men more so than to be heard by God. It reminds me of the little guy who was praying for a bicycle. He was on his knees in his room. He was shouting out, Lord, please, I want a new bike. His mom walked into the room and said, Honey, hold it down. God isn't hard of hearing. And that's when the little boy replied, I know, Mom, but Grandma is, and she's in the next room. When you pray, remember you're praying to God, not to men. Jesus says, but you, when you pray, go into your room. And when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Now, there is a place for public prayers. We have many of them recorded in Scripture. But prayer is primarily a private act between us and God. And we need to protect it from corruption. We need to keep it private, at least our personal prayers private. And the byproduct of this privacy is good for us. It blocks out distractions. I mean, go to your room. Close your door behind you. There you can focus your thoughts and your concentration. Spending time with God is a Christian's most important activity, and it happens best in private places. Once I officiated a wedding, and as the couple was standing here in the altar right in front of me, I was facing the congregation, I made a statement, and this is what I meant to say. I meant to say, God has given the wife to compliment the man. But that's not what came out of my mouth. It was one of those moments, man. Oh, you, you say it and then you want to grab it and pull it back. This is what I did say. God has given the wife to complicate the husband. And though that's true, it wasn't exactly fitting of the occasion. But it does fit what the Pharisees did to prayer. Trust me. They complicated prayer. And in response, Jesus simplifies prayer. Verse 7, notice this. And when, they, and when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do. For they think they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them. The model prayer that Jesus is going to give us here in verse 9 contains just 65 words. It takes you 30 seconds to recite it. It's complete yet concise. And this is the way our praying needs to be. The Pharisees, though, they had the opposite idea. Oh, they were verbose. They emphasized duration instead of devotion. One famous prayer prayed by the Pharisees began like this. Blessed, praised, and glorified, exalted, extolled, and honored, magnified, and lauded be the name of the Holy One. And that was just the beginning You can only imagine what comes next. Reminds me of the prayer meeting where the guy was praying far, far too much. Finally, he shouted, And now, Lord, what more can we say to thee? A man in the back blurted out, How about amen? I've discovered that people who pray long prayers in public are usually those people who pray very short prayer, insignificant prayers in private. You know, when you're carrying on a continuous conversation with God, You really don't have to rehearse every detail every time you pray. You can kind of get right to the point if you're in the habit of praying. It's been said, a short prayer will reach God if you don't live too far away. I like that. 
It's not the length of our prayers. It's the strength of our prayers that matters. That's what Jesus said. Jesus forbids vain repetition. The Greek word is batologio. It means idle, thoughtless chatter. You hear batologio at little league games. The fielders are out in the field. They're all chattering. Hey, swing, batter, swing. You know what I'm talking about. It's just sort of meaningless verbiage designed to kind of help your mind stay focused and keep it from wandering. You know, it's interesting. When you go to the Wailing Wall today, this is what you find. You find there in Jerusalem today, in modern-day Jerusalem, modern-day times, you find Pharisees chanting their prayers, bobbing their heads back and forth, back and forth, praying just vain repetition, just recitation. All the while, they're looking around, nodding at their friends, hoping people see them, kind of looking around, chit-chatting with you when you come up and want to talk, all in the name of prayer. Obviously, such praying is rote and routine. It's far more mechanical than meaningful. And this is the kind of prayer Jesus could care very little about. In prayer, God cares about heart, not just articulation. Sincerity, not eloquence. It's been said in prayer, it is, to, it is better to have heart without words than to have words without heart. And here's why heart is more important than words. For your father knows the things you have need of before you ask him. Notice that prayer is not us informing God. (laughs) God already knows our needs. He's more acquainted with our needs than we are. Prayer is expressing our dependence on God to meet those needs. Verse 9. In this manner... Therefore, pray. Now, verses 9 through 13 are what we often call the Lord's Prayer. But this is not the Lord's Prayer. This is not a prayer that Jesus would have ever prayed. For Jesus would have never prayed, forgive us our debts. Jesus had no need of forgiveness. Jesus was sinless. He was perfect. No, this is not the Lord's Prayer. This is the disciples' prayer. The words in this manner can be translated along these lines. Or after this pattern. Jesus is giving his disciples here a model prayer, a prototype for prayer. It's very, a very good one at that. The disciples' prayer teaches us the flow of prayer. Notice it begins and ends with praise, as should our prayers. In the middle, you'll find petition, requests. And throughout this prayer, you'll notice that it's laced with intercession, praying for others. Notice the plural pronouns that appear in the prayer. Our Father. Give us. Lead us. Implied is that we're not only praying these things for ourselves, but we're praying these things for each other. Now the prayer begins. Our Father in heaven. The word translated Father is the Aramaic word Abba, which could be translated Daddy or Papa. It's a term of endearment. Jesus puts us on intimate terms with God. Hallowed be your name. One little boy went home from Sunday school and he told his mom that he knew God's name. His name was Howard. In Sunday school we learned, Howard, be thy name. Well, the word isn't Howard, it's Hallowed. It's a derivative of holy. It means to set apart. To hallow God's name is to acknowledge His preeminence and to honor His greatness. He says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth 
as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Notice Jesus doesn't say give us this day our daily steak and lobster. Or our daily chocolate mousse. It's give us this day our daily bread. Bread was not a luxury. Bread was a staple. It was a part of the diet. Understand God never promises all that we would want. But he does promise to provide what we truly need. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. C.S. Lewis was once asked, what is found in Christianity which is not found in any other religion? And he replied, that's simple. The forgiveness of sin. Forgiveness is the wonderful, blessed uniqueness of Christianity. Let's be thankful that we have a God who forgives and forgets. That we have a God, the scriptures say, who is rich in mercy. You know, you want your God to be rich. But what do you need most? (laughs) I need him to be rich in mercy and rich in forgiveness. Our God is. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, we've prayed for provision, our daily bread. We've prayed for pardon. Forgive us of our trespasses or our debts. Now we pray for protection. We should ask God to protect us from ourselves, first of all. Lord, help us to steer clear of the tempting situation. Do not lead us into temptation. Lord, keep me from making a mistake. Keep me from biting off more than I can chew. Keep me from strolling unknowingly into the teeth of a temptation. Protect me from the wiles of the devil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Notice this prayer that Jesus prays frees us from, first of all, the guilt of the past. Forgive us our debts. It also frees us, though, from the fear of the future. Don't lead us into temptation. Deliver us from the evil one. This prayer enables us to live in the present. Give us this day our daily bread. You know, today's joys are often stifled by past failure or by future fears. The key to staying in the present is prayer. Enjoy God's blessings. Spend time with God. Turn your cares into prayers. And you can live moment by moment and get the most out of life. The next two verses are the prayer's postscript. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. In other words, an unforgiving spirit is proof that that person knows very little of God's forgiveness. I mean, come on. You receive forgiveness and you'll show forgiveness. If you receive it, you'll appreciate it and you'll want to extend it to others. Forgiveness will be something you relish and something you're excited about on the coming in and on the going out. Now, verse 16. Moreover, when you fast. Notice again, it's not if you fast. It's when you fast. Of these three practices, giving improves my relationship with with others. Praying improves my relationship with God. And fasting improves my relationship with, with me. Let me get something off my chest tonight. Would you give me a minute? There's a person here tonight... That gives me constant problems. I have more more problems with this person than any other church member, any other person in this church. He lacks self-control. He shies away from sacrifice. 
He's nowhere near as disciplined as he needs to be. I'm having real problems with this guy. His name is Sandy Adams. And nowhere are my problems more apparent than when it comes to fasting. I've been trying to lose a little weight lately. And it has proven to me that food is far more important to me than it should be. Obviously, you have to eat to live. But you don't have to eat as much as I like to. And fasting is a good reminder of what is important in life. Fasting is a means to build into my life traits that I desire and that I need. But traits that come, that are difficult to develop. Traits like discipline. And self-control. And sacrifice. Fasting is an exercise in delayed gratification. It puts the flesh on hold to focus on the spirit. I like this definition of fasting. Fasting is a way to fatten up the soul. (laughs) Indeed it is. Fasting is good. But Jesus warns us that it can be abused. Moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance. For they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. Again, in the hands of a spiritual hot dog, fasting can turn into a real sham. You see, the Jews fasted twice a week. They fasted on Mondays and on Thursdays. So on the days that they were to fast, the Pharisees would be, again, in the markets, in the bazaars where there was a crowd. And they would go there with their hair all mused up. And their clothes torn. And they would be dressing in sackcloth. And they even had this white paste that they spread across their face to make them look pale and anemic. In short, they looked like an unmade bed. And it was all done to attract public attention. To let people know what they were doing. That they were fasting for God. Jesus is warning us, don't wear your spirituality on your sleeve. Again, if you do something to be seen by men, you have your reward. You'll have no reward before your Father in heaven. He says in verse 17, But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, so that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Jesus says, wash your hair with some nice shampoo and splash on a little cologne, man. Brush your teeth. Look like you're enjoying life when you're fasting. Don't let anybody know that that you're trying to deprive yourself of food. In other words, when you're most spiritual, try to look normal. Why is it that some people have this idea that that the more spiritual they are, the weirder they're going to be? Or the weirder they're going to look? You know, G. Campbell Morgan, he, he said this. Let it be perpetual Lent within the secret chamber of your being. An everlasting Easter on your face. The best witness is a smile, not a frown. Hey, the world needs to see that the point of our repentance is the joy of the Lord. I've heard it said, you can be a fundamentalist, but you don't have to look like one. (laughs) You can exercise your spirit. You can be a spiritual person and still look normal. And still wear a smile on your face. And still be somebody that the world can relate to. Verse 19 tells us. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Where moth and rust destroy. And where thieves break in and steal. 
But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Now in ancient times, they didn't have the first national bank down on the street corner. You kept your money in one of three places. Some people invested in expensive clothes. And they would weave threads of gold and silver into their linen garments. This, the added bonus to that, not only did they hold on to their wealth, but then they could show it off whenever they got dressed. Others planted wheat and barley. Then they harvested, they stored it in the silos and sold it in the markets. It was a way of investing their wealth. Still others hid their wealth in the walls of their houses. Or they would bury their treasure out in a field. All three forms of saving carried some risk. I mean, moss could eat away at the golden garment. Grain could rot sitting in the silo. A hidden treasure was vulnerable to thieves and poachers. See, a good investor has two concerns. You want minimum risk and you want maximum reward. That's what makes for a good investment. Jesus tells us that earthly investments fail in both criteria. The best place to invest your money and your time and your energy and your talents is in heavenly spiritual pursuits. Investments in God's kingdom are risk-free and they reap eternal dividends. They win on both counts. Here's a good rule of thumb. If it's not going to be around 100 years from now, don't sweat it. It's not worth the investment. Far better to focus on spiritual things. It's been said, if you don't want a broken heart, don't focus on breakables. So many of us set ourselves up for disappointment, don't we? By the things that we seek. There was a rich lady, she died, and she arrived in heaven only to find that she had been assigned a little small thatch roof mud hut out on the outskirts of the city, out in the boondocks of heaven. Can you imagine? And it was right across the street from this marvelous, incredible mansion. She was steamed, really outraged. She deserved a mansion. And when she complained to the angel in charge, he told her, Ma'am, the houses in heaven are built with materials you send us in advance. You choose them by your faithfulness or lack of it on earth. Jesus says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Notice, notice this. Your heart follows your treasure. Not vice versa. Your heart will follow whatever it is that you treasure and value. What you deem most important in life will determine the preoccupation of your heart and thus the direction of your life. If your heart has grown cold toward God tonight, then track your treasure. You'll discover that the things of the world have become too important to you and they've crowded out your love for God. Your heart will always follow what you value. He says the lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Now, now here's how it works. Here's how life works. My heart follows my values. But my values are determined by my viewpoint. Your eye 
or your perspective is either good or bad. It's either colored by God in the word of God and the things of God. Or your perspective is colored by the world and the things of the world and the philosophies of the world. In a sense, we are all wearing a pair of tinted glasses. Everyone in this room has a pair of tinted glasses they're wearing. You're either wearing God-colored glasses or you're wearing world-colored glasses. Now, if your eye is good, if you are seeing life from God's viewpoint, you're seeing clearly. God is casting a light upon your choices, upon the direction of your life. But if your eye is bad, if your perspective is tainted with doubt and worry and fear and worldliness and selfishness and pride, then you're going to have a warped view of life. And you're going to end up making bad choices. So the question tonight is what glasses do you wear? Do you look at life through God-colored glasses? Or do you look at life through world-colored glasses? This is why we need to put on our God-colored glasses. See, here's how life works. Your heart follows your treasure. But your treasure is determined by how you look at life. Your viewpoint. And your viewpoint. Here's the last link. Your viewpoint is determined by your God. That's what Jesus says next. Verse 24. No man can serve two masters. No man can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other. Or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Now here's the bottom line. Who do you serve? Every heart has a throne. All men and women have a master. To whom do you bow? Jesus says no one can serve two masters. You can have several hobbies. Or you can have two jobs. But you can't have two gods. Your heart's throne is a one-seater. Don't forget it. People try to serve multiple masters. And they end up with one foot in the world and one foot with the Lord. It never works for long. A decision is required. It's been said, if Jesus is not Lord of all, He is not Lord at all. You can't take Jesus as your Savior and not make Him your Lord. I've heard it put this way, Jesus never saves who He can't command. And it's true. I love how John Ruskin once put it, Christ will put up with a great many things in the human heart. But there is one thing he will not put up with. And that's second place. Guys, this is why Jesus said you cannot serve two masters. Now, your heart follows your treasures. Your treasures are determined by your viewpoint. And your viewpoint is determined by the God that you serve. And that's the way life works. Verse 25 Contains the most disobeyed command in all the scripture. Therefore I say to you. Do not worry about your life. What you will eat or what you will drink. Nor about your body. What you will put on. Again worry is not a weakness. Worry is a sin. And Jesus helps us overcome our worry. By pointing out three truths about it. Verse 25 he says it is irresponsible. Verse 27, he says it's irrelevant. 
And in verse 28, it's irreverent. First, worry is irresponsible. It is a waste of our limited time and energy. Jesus asks, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? I mean, isn't that 90% of the stuff we worry about? What's temporal rather than what's eternal? Again, worry is like a rocking chair. It will give you something to do, but it won't get you anywhere. Worry is a complete waste. Jesus says, look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? Cubit was 18 inches. Here's the point. Worry is irrelevant. You know, you can worry and worry and worry and worry and it's not going to make you one inch taller. Jesus says in verse 28, so why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven... Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? God clothes the lilies and he feeds the birds. And when they die, they disappear into oblivion. You're his child. His child. How much more willing is God going to be to care for you and to meet your needs? If you have riches forever waiting on you, trust me, God will keep you fed and warm for the time being. If you believe in God, and if you believe in the love of God, then you shouldn't worry. Therefore, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. Worry is being a poor witness. When we worry, we act like unbelievers, people without God. As I said this morning, it is a poor witness for people who are saved by faith to worry. Worry is irresponsible, it's irrelevant, and it's also irreverent. It's a slap in God's face. God cares about us. He is a Father who loves us and a Father who has taken care, promised to take care of us. We need to trust Him. Unbelievers, we're told, worry about lots of stuff. But the Christian should worry about just one thing. Verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things shall be added to you. Here is God's promise. Make pleasing God your top priority and He'll see to it that everything else you need is provided. You know, it's surprising. The key to overcoming worry is worry. Right worry. Not about yourself or about your needs, but about God's kingdom and His righteousness and His concerns. Jesus says, therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things, sufficient for the day, its own trouble. Worry paralyzes the present. Again, it takes tomorrow's cloud and he casts it over today's sunshine. Don't waste your time with worry. And most of what we worry about, it never happens anyway. Chapter 7. Judge not that you be not judged. 
Now, I have no doubt that chapter 7, verse 1 of Matthew is the most abused verse in the Bible. It's constantly being made to say what it was never intended to say. Talk to somebody who's shacking up with his girlfriend. Or who drinks too much. Or who smokes weed. Or who cheats on his income tax. Confront them about their sin. And they'll snarl at you. And they'll say, you think you're so good, don't you? But you know what the Bible says. Judge not that you be not judged. How many of you ever heard that before? We all have. It's the most abused verse in the Bible. Here's a verse that everybody likes to hide behind. But understand, any judgment that is based on Scripture is no longer me judging. It's God's Word. It's God's judgment, not my judgment. 